From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Christmas episode of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by that jolly old elf, my co-host, producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? No, I'm not too bad. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. I, I, I think you need a couple more pillows in that Santa Claus costume you're wearing. No, 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 no. I'm like Santa Claus, uh, Santa Claus, uh, Tim Allen before he gets the white hair and gets really big. And that's, oh, that's my okay. style. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So well, that's good. Well, I, I got an early Christmas present. Um, I got delivered today my Tashin Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse, The Ultimate History Behemoth of a Book. Uh, and you read it already, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah, I, I, I should just take it to the gym and work out with it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this this is not a book where I'm going to be sitting up in bed reading it at night. Yeah, oh. because this 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 is a book where you you need one of those. Remember from uh, you know when when Walt tells the story of Mickey Mouse, you know, and he says his famous line, "Let's never forget one thing." It all started it all started you know with the mouse, and he has that big book that he opens on that big book pedestal. That's what you need for this book. <laughs> I, it, if only they made an audio version of it where someone just <laughs> describes the pictures that are in it and then reads the text that oh. would be you know i i wish i could afford this book um i mean i i could but um i that would be a hard sell to to kylie of like hey we need this book it's well, tell her you worth every cent tell her you need it for research yeah, and for she's, the show. she's going to tell me then that she needs to go on more vacations for <laughs> research, and I don't think I have a uh, a valid argument against that uh, one. And well, uh, I got a, I got a pretty nifty discount through, by pre ordering it through Amazon, yeah. so that was good. Yeah. But um, my problem with it, first of all, this is a gorgeous book. I mean, it is beautiful. the 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 photos are incredible, especially being that large. Yeah. And I mean, I don't need a magnifying glass to, <laughs> to read all the little captions and, and you know everything that's in the little cartoon strips that they reproduce. But you know, the problem is with all these Tashin books is they don't fit on a bookshelf. Yes. A normal bookshelf. So I have to figure out. You know, this is my third one now, and I've got to figure out. Okay, where am I putting these? <laughs> yeah, no, I I mean, I only have uh, of their books, I only have the Disneyland one. But uh, luckily, I have one bookshelf where I made one row uh, extra, extra tall. So that way I could could put some of my odd sized books on there. And even then I'm running out of room 
with one yeah. because there's there's a bunch of random Disney ones that are just slightly too big. So I, I feel your pain on that. And you can only have so many coffee tables around with books on them. Well, this would take up a whole coffee table practically. I have a really large in, in our in our bedroom. I have a really I have a bookcase that has a really large shelf because I have a big fig on it. And um, I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder if I can put these books on either side of that big fig. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, but um, it, but it's um, yeah, it, it, but it's it's a very nice book. Yeah, it really, I, it's, it will come in handy. So. But I have no idea how I'm going to read it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's I will I will let you do all that work first, and then uh, when I find it one day at like a Goodwill or something, and I can get it at a at a reasonable price, then I will get your advice on the best way to tackle that book. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Um, but you know this this is our holiday episode, our Christmas episode, and I want to bring up something a listener who is at Hong Kong Disneyland sent me. This is something that. Disneyland in California used to have. I don't know if Walt Disney World did, but he sent me a an official Hong Kong Disneyland Christmas postcard. Mm. And it is beautifully drawn. It is classic, the classic um, uh, rendering of these characters, not the more modern one that's on the Disney Channel. Mm-hmm. And this one, it's, it's on Main Street. It's a Main Street setting, and it's in the snow, they're in Hong Kong Disneyland, and it's um, D- Donald, Daisy, and Goofy. And there's you see the big Christmas tree in the background, and it's snowing. These big um, multi-shaped uh, snowflakes. And Donald has a gift, and it looks like Daisy's tackling him or something for it. She and would. then, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, she's not your favorite. And this this would only reinforce it. <laughs> and then, um, and then Goofy. I don't know who he's looking at, but he's very excited. And I, you know, it almost looks like this postcard is one of a series because I can see a little, what looks like a little tail off that's cut off and, and Goofy's foot is cut off. And I said, I bet there's a series of postcards that all fit together that make one scene. Hmm. And anyway, he's holding a plush Bambi. So, and looking off somewhere. So, um, but it's neat. And then what's cool is, is that they, there's a special Hong Kong Disneyland um, postmark and stamp. It looks like it's a pre, you know, like a pre-stamped kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it's really nice because it used to be in the olden days when Disneyland sold, you know, a vast array of postcards and cards. Uh, and if you mailed it, and they also sold postage stamps, and then if you mailed it, from the park, it had a Disneyland postage, you know, stamp okay. mark, but they don't do that anymore. And then it says a Disney Christmas there, and and it there's stamps of Donald and Goofy, even on on the back of the card as well. So um, anyway, so that was nice. So so thank you very much to our connecting with Walt listener for sending that to me. That was a very nice um, Christmas treat. Yeah, very cool. Well, speaking of Christmas, every year Craig and I like to have a special holiday episode of Connecting with Walt to ring in the season. This year, we are delighted to welcome back our favorite Christmas elf to share some holiday stories. Uh, it's Disney historian and author Jim Corcus. Jim, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. 
Well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me and and giving me an opportunity to uh, promote my latest uh, book, The the Vault of Walt, Volume 7, uh, Christmas Edition, which has a bunch of Yuletide tales of of Walt in the parks and animation and comics and and uh, so much more and and of course I feel quite at home uh, because um, I used to be a friend of Santa's at uh, Six Flags Magic Mountain uh, amusement park out in uh, Southern California and I almost got to be a friend of Santa at uh, Walt Disney World. But um, just uh, just before they were going to cast me, I got uh, uh, transferred from entertainment over to uh, teaching animation at the Disney Institute. So uh, I was not allowed that opportunity. But uh, but apparently, I had the uh, uh, appropriate Santa cheeks, and and I certainly had the. Uh, uh, appropriate Santa uh, belly, unfortunately. Oh, the but... bowl full of jelly? Is that it? <laughs> it, it, it was full of something. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll just say that it it was mm. jelly. And and I will tell you the the one most important thing I learned about playing Santa because uh, also in Southern California I I I did it at a couple of uh, uh, malls where they had the uh, photo booths uh, set up where children could. Uh, sit on your leg and you know get their holiday picture taken. The most important thing when you're you're playing Santa is make sure you put on the rubber pants before you put on your costume. And people say, "What are you talking about, rubber pants?" And I said, "Because you're being handed these screaming children <laughs> mm-hmm. who do not want to be on on the leg of this uh, strange man with this white beard." And the parents keep us uh, insisting, and so the children get maybe a little excited. So um, you go back soaked after the end of your uh, uh, (laughs) 30-minute set. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, it's it's going to be a very corkous Christmas because you, in just the last few months... I've gotten, I have purchased four new books from you, not just. You're the the one. I was wondering who was buying my books. But thank heavens, I finally found out who the person is. (laughs) You have been, do you just want to quickly run through the other three titles? Because I have a feeling we're going to have you back on that to share stories from all of those. And and, and again, it it, it was just so funny that they all just hit at once. They, They were not written. What happens is I, I will write a book and I'll I'll send it uh, send the manuscript to the publisher, but the publisher may be backed up with with other titles or there may be other uh, things. So, um, extra secret stories of Walt Disney World, which is a uh, a, a nice little book that uh, has uh, uh, short stories about uh, the parks and the resorts and uh, the other areas you know out outside the the park whether it's the uh uh winter summerland golf course or uh whatever and uh more secret stories of disneyland yeah, which uh, again is done in, in the uh, same format and again one of the most challenging books to write because uh just on a dare from my publisher i wrote uh secret stories of disneyland and i said listen Everybody and their mother has written a book about, you know, 
hidden magic secrets of, you know, Disneyland, and there's all the websites and all of that. And so he challenged me, can I come up with stories that have never been told or have been told uh, wrong, or there's a different perspective on that. So I wrote that, and I thought, that was it. And then the big mistake is, that book sold very well. (laughs) (laughs) So he said, can you write a sequel? And I said, are you insane? And so I I started, and sure enough, I I was able uh, to do that. And then, of course, with uh, Mickey Mouse's uh, 90th anniversary in November, it was like uh, Secret Stories of Mickey Mouse. So mm-hmm. uh, that one was fun for me because I, I, I just have a real fondness for Walt's mouse. So I came up with stories like how in the uh, original King Kong movie in 1933, it was actually Mickey Mouse who killed King Kong. Mickey Mouse appears in that film, and he kills King Kong. And if you're intrigued by that, then yes, buy buy the book. So you know it's it's not just Michael who is buying these. Uh, <laughs> it, we would need a you know another two or three people to start buying these books, and and then of course the book that we're going to talk about tonight, the Vault of Walt uh, Christmas edition, which is uh, every time this year I usually get requests from um, uh, magazines and from podcasts and from websites and you know. Do you have a good, you know, Disney Christmas story? And I've had I had several, but I thought, you know, maybe I should write these down somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, so that there's one location, you know, uh for them, and then I realized that the stories I had uh fell into the same format that I have for the previous uh Vault of Walt books where there's a section devoted to Walt, there's a section devoted to the films, there's a section um, devoted to the parks, and there's a miscellaneous um, uh, section. Because when people say, oh, yes, I'm a big Disney fan, I love Disney, people generally love different things about Disney. They, they develop that love for Disney in, in different ways. Maybe they heard a Disney song. Maybe they went to a Disney park. Maybe they uh, saw something on um, TV. Maybe they read a comic book, you know, uh, that had Disney uh, uh, characters uh, um, in it. And and when I say maybe they went to the park, some people's first experience is Disneyland. But I found an awful lot of experience was Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, people who have been to both places, it's it's a completely different culture. It's <laughs> oh, completely it is. different. Uh, uh, approach and although there are similarities to how they celebrate uh, the holiday season, there are some um, significant uh, differences. You know, at, at Disneyland, you uh, might only have uh, two performances of the Candlelight Processional, whereas out at uh, Walt Disney World, you might have thirty-five. You know, and uh, with with different narrators, and you know. So it's yeah. Let's get all of this okay. down in print well, so that uh, so that people can you know share this and uh, do what Walt wanted, which was really keep the spirit of Christmas in your heart, you know, uh, all year round. And, well, and, so, and I think that's very much what Disney and Christmas is about: is is capturing that that wonder of life and that. Uh, uh, 
good sense of being a child, and uh, the two just seemed to go together, and, and, and I'm surprised <laughs> it took me so long for an anvil to fall on my head and go, you know, you should write a book about Disney and Christmas. <laughs> well, Craig and I have asked Jim to share a couple of stories from each section of mm-hmm. the book that may be new to our connecting with Walt family. So we're going to start out with Walt Disney stories. And I, I was just at the Walt Disney Family Museum this past weekend, and I saw their uh, film that Don Hahn produced, you know, Walt Disney. Yes, this time that's uh, narrated by that Diane. several years ago, and yeah. just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and it narrated by his daughter, Diane Disney Miller. Mm-hmm. And so, and it... it so it, it meant a lot more to me because of two stories that I want to talk about from your book. And it's Santa Walt at mm-hmm. home and Santa Walt at work because okay. of just because Diane Disney Miller had very strong memories of her father at Christmas time. Oh, yeah. And and you you tell some lovely stories about Walt and how he celebrated at home. And then it was almost like Walt had the studio transformed into like Santa's workshop because he wanted (laughs) to mix because he wanted to share that spirit of giving that, that spirit of Christmas joy with others that, that he enlisted his secretaries and himself in making Mm -hmm. sure that he spread that holiday, um, Cheer. So, so. Well, how, in how fact, Michael, I'll give you an exclusive that's okay. not in the book. You'll notice in the introduction, I, I said, you know, this is a sampling of, of some of my favorite stories, but there's still so many more Christmas stories that just because of the size of the book, you can't put everything in. But again, if this book sells well, there'll be a sequel and those stories will be in here. But here's an exclusive. Uh, for connecting with Walt, you talked about how Walt wanted to uh, share Christmas with so many others. One of the things that I I don't think people realize is that Walt pretty much kept his um, charity work uh, unpublicized. People don't realize how much charity work uh, he really did. Now, Now, they certainly realize that uh, uh, he was involved with uh, uh, Toys for Tots. In fact, uh, he's considered a uh, uh, founding sponsor of that. And in fact, it was Walt himself who came up with the design of that uh, uh, red train, you know, which is the logo for Toys for Tots mm-hmm. used today. Because Walt actually came from a background um, in advertising, where he would draw logos and all. That. He came up with that, but. He had the artists at the studio come up with uh, posters over the years, and Walt did a lot of uh, public uh, service announcements in support of uh, Toys for Tots. And Disneyland, of course, had uh, deposit barrels in in every land, so you could go and deposit a a new toy uh, there. Although in those days, uh, the Marines also accepted used toys, and then they would spend the weekend rehabbing that. But one of the things that most people don't realize is right across the street uh, from the uh, Disney studio was uh, St. Joseph's Hospital, where, where Walt, you know, unfortunately later passed away, uh, you know, 10 days before Christmas, unfortunately. But um, uh, what Walt did for St. Joseph's 
and again, nobody knows about this. I only discovered it after I finished writing the book. Is every year he would throw a Christmas party uh, in the children's ward there at St. Joseph's. And it wasn't just for the uh, uh, patients there, also the children of the staff of St. Joseph's attended. And Walt made sure that all of them got uh, Christmas presents, and he sent over Disney Entertainment when, when the Mouseketeers, the original Mouseketeers, uh, were around. He would send the Mouseketeers over uh, uh, to entertain. And then when St. Joseph's built a, um, a hospital up in, uh, in Anaheim, in Orange County in, in Anaheim, Walt did the same thing. And uh, it took me, I, I just by accident stumbled across it because Walt never publicized any of this. Walt, uh, you know, wanted to, uh, you know, make sure that everybody's Christmas was uh, uh, happy. Uh, Imagineer uh, Roly Crump told me this story about a, a Christmas. He was uh, in the early days of Disneyland. He was up there with... Um, Walt and they were sitting in, on a, a bench in front of uh, uh, City Hall, and as they were sitting there, they saw this nun uh, come in, and she was holding this rope, and the rope went to a child, and it wrapped around their waist, and then it went and it wrapped around another child's waist, and, and then at the end of, of the rope was another nun, you know, holding the, the rope. And so Walt, of course, had great curiosity, and, and especially since this is the holiday season, so he jumps up and he he runs to the nun in the front and and asks you know what's great and she said oh well you know as, as a as a Christmas gift we've decided you know to take these orphans you know to to Disneyland and we had enough money to buy some admission for all of us and also buy uh, some tickets uh, so that the children could could ride some of the attractions and Walt said. Uh, wait here a minute. And he ran away, and he had went to the uh, uh, ticket kiosk at the front of Disneyland. He came back, and he refunded all of their money, gave them additional tickets, and said, by the way, I've made arrangements for you guys to have lunch at uh, the Red uh, Wagon Inn at the end of Main Street. I just love it. Their hamburgers are, are the best. And Rolly said, Walt just came back and plopped down on the bench next to him, and he said, you know, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so now now what you mentioned in your book, and, and Diane Disney Miller also mentioned, is that even though Walt loved to give gifts and do charity work, he didn't necessarily like receiving gifts. No, I, I think he felt awkward about that. And, and, you know, you mentioned Diane Disney Miller. What a, what a loss that a tragic... Uh, and uh, foolish uh, accident took her uh, away from us much too soon because she had so much more that she was going to do. And and you'll notice in in my book because I knew Diane is I quote her uh, extensively since I mm -hmm. knew her because uh, again in all of my books I feel that great obligation that since I had this wonderful opportunity to meet some of these people and talk with them. And they're no longer uh, around to share their stories or share their voice that I feel this obligation to, to do that. So there's a lot of uh, Diane in there. 
But I think Walt felt uncomfortable because he grew up in a very uh, poor family. And, and so uh, even around Christmas, uh, for a Christmas gift, he would get something, um, you know, practical. And, uh, you know, like a jacket uh, uh, and, or underwear or something like that. You know, it, it was Roy who would save up extra money in order to get uh, Walt a little toy and his uh, younger sister Ruth uh, uh, one. So I think as Walt grew older, uh, he was unaccustomed to get gifts, and especially if he got gifts uh, from like other studio heads or whatever, he, he was a little suspicious that the gift wasn't being given from the heart. It was being given, you know, uh, to leverage, you know, a partnership in the future or, or whatever. And, and again, you just never knew what to give uh, Walt. So uh, Diane and Sharon one time got him this big book of uh, artwork of Leonardo da Vinci, you know, because Walt was always studying, always. And, and he goes, what are you trying to do, educate me? <laughs> and um, uh, Diane said later uh, they found him in, 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 the, uh, in a corner of the living room sitting in his favorite chair with the book on the lap, you know, uh, going through that, he, he he sort of felt embarrassed about uh, getting a, 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 a prize or a, or a present or uh, whatever. But uh, his uh, studio nurse um, uh, Hazel George, you know, really knew how to um, uh, you know uh, the, touch the child in Walt because. She would go out and at Christmas would buy him, you know, like a dime store kaleidoscope. And Walt would just be so excited by, you know, putting it to his eye and seeing the different shapes that whoever came into his office that Christmas, you know, Walt would thrust it at them, you know, to, you know, look at that. And, and what do you see? And, you know, isn't that, you know, uh, so Walt, Walt was a child at heart. But, but again, presents never really seemed to make a difference for him. He, he liked to be recognized at one time in a newspaper, uh, in a magazine article, uh, they asked him, you know, well, what does Walt Disney want for Christmas? And, and, and Walt said, you know, he really didn't care as long as there was just something under the tree for him, you know, so that he was, he was remembered. But, uh, no, he, his great joy was seeing, uh, you know, other people happy. And, and, and he took great care in terms of trying to find you know, just the right thing for, um, you know, his, his family and for, um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, children of the people who worked at the studio and uh, uh, the children of uh, 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 the uh, uh, connections he had with uh, other studios and reporters and things like that. And, and, and you mentioned uh, uh, Santa's workshop. They uh, Walt, starting in November, would set aside part of one of the uh, sound stages at the Disney Studio as Santa's workshop, and and his poor secretaries would would be in there spending most of the day wrapping these presents, uh, and there would be one big present and then several little presents, and Walt insisted that they all be wrapped individually, not just lumped together. And uh, there were uh, several uh, wooden boxes with index cards. And so they kept track of the child and what the child had received that year. So that the next year, uh, they, 
wouldn't get, you know, the same thing or, you know, uh, uh, something similar. And the uh, Disney Archives still has those wooden boxes. In fact, they uh, put them on display and a couple of the cards on display uh, uh, last year at the uh, uh, Disney Studio. But uh, And then when a, a child reached 12, he was no longer a child. Uh, and in fact, that was true at, at, at uh, Disneyland. At Disneyland, if you were 12 years old, you were no longer a child, you were now a junior. And so once you were a junior, uh, you just received, uh, you know, the Disney Studio uh, uh, Christmas card, which was still, you know, pretty nice because those were not, not a lot of them were sent out and, and the artwork and all, just amazing. Some of it done by mm -hmm. uh, John Hench, Mary Blair, um, you know, really really good stuff but yeah for for walt uh it was tough to find him uh, uh something because he didn't want people to buy him you know shirts or uh, uh things like that he liked to buy his own stuff you know um although one sad story connected with christmas the last christmas uh uh, 1966, when when Walt was in St. Joseph's Hospital on December 14th, the um, uh, day before Walt passed away, Diane went uh, down and bought him a, a cashmere sweater uh, for Christmas because Walt had been undergoing chemotherapy and all that and had lost a lot of weight and so, you know, felt uncomfortable in the in the clothes that he had. So she bought him, because he loved sweaters, loved wearing sweaters, uh, bought him a sweater that, um, you know, uh, would fit. And uh, she also thought about uh, picking up a small Christmas tree to bring and put in his room, but, but felt she wouldn't be allowed to do that. And, and uh, she later told me she regretted she didn't do that. And then, unfortunately, uh, the next morning, um, uh, Walt passed away. Uh, cardiac arrest, which uh, a heart attack, basically uh, brought on by uh, uh, the cancer, and so never got to see his uh, uh, final Christmas. And so, you know, I always tell people that uh, it's uh, up to us uh, to celebrate that final Christmas uh, uh, for Walt by keeping, you know, his spirit of giving alive, his spirit of, uh, you know wonder and joy mm -hmm. i agree absolutely you know when you bring up you brought up that kaleidoscope um story and i thought mm -hmm. maybe that's why in uh, remember the intro to the wonderful world of color mm -hmm. they had all those kaleidoscope scenes you, you know every, everything gets credits. connected mm -hmm. everything yeah. everything comes from somewhere yeah. you know you 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 never know yeah you never know well, in your book, we're going to move on to animation and television stories section. Oh, sure. Now. Okay. And in, and in your book, um, the Vault of Vault Christmas Edition, you write about how bold it was for Walt Disney to include Christmas scenes in his films, which it, that mm -hmm. had never really occurred to me. And oh, oh and, yes, because because first off, uh, other countries, some of them don't celebrate Christmas, or or they don't celebrate Christmas in the way that we do, you know? And, and if you have a Santa Claus uh, character, the 
Chris Kringle character, the Father Noel, whatever, is different in, in some countries. And in addition, and this was important too, especially in the early days of uh, uh, Disney when, when money was so tight, is distributors would only re-release the cartoon during that really short window of opportunity uh, during the holiday season. You know, it, it would make no sense to release uh, Twas the Night Before Christmas, you know, in July or May, mm-hmm. you know. And, and so whereas uh, other Mickey cartoons or whatever could be released just about any time of the year, the Christmas cartoons were limited to just that little uh, 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 window, you know, there in November and December, and then that was it. It's gone. Yeah. Yeah, and and he included a number of Christmas scenes in his films, like Lady and the Tramp, the famous mm-hmm. scene with with Lady, and then Swiss Family Robinson. Well, and, and, and most people don't realize. I I argue that Lady and the Tramp is a Christmas film because it both begins and ends at Christmas. Mm-hmm. It does. You know, although I have friends who argue that Die Hard is a Christmas film. Yes, there's because always it takes that place at Christmas. There's always that and, and I have friends who will argue that the James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service mm-hmm. is a Christmas film because the scenes take place at Christmas. There's even an original uh, uh, Christmas song. You know how Christmas trees are grown. But for me, Lady and the Tramp is a Christmas film because, again, it begins at Christmas. And, of course, that, that scene of uh, Lady being in a hat box is actually, we talk about things being connected, is actually a reference uh, to one of the earliest Christmas gifts that Walt gave uh, to his wife, Lillian. Um, Shortly after they were um, uh, first married, uh, they lived in a a house which was right next door to uh, Walt's brother, uh, Roy Disney. In fact, the houses were mirror images uh, of each other. And Walt, now that he finally had, you know, his own house, you know, one of the things he wanted was a dog because he loved dogs. You know, he, 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 he just loved dogs, period. Any kind of dogs. They, they were great. And, but Lillian didn't want a dog because she felt that dogs smelled, dogs uh, shed all over the, the place. They were, they were noisy. They were getting underfoot, whatever. And so you learn very quickly that you never say no to Walt. So Walt went out and did all of this massive research and came back with, with charts and books and, and all of this about how the chow, uh, you know, w- was a very clean dog and didn't uh, shed or didn't shed much and, and all of this. And he, and he does this whole, you know, presentation. And Lillian goes, well, if we ever get a dog, then that would be the type of dog we would think about getting but we're not getting a dog. <laughs> so Walt, of course, goes out <laughs> and gets a chow puppy. But he keeps it over at uh, Roy's house. And then when Christmas comes, uh, there's a huge Christmas tree, and, and Walt's uh, uh, niece, uh, Marjorie, uh, uh, was given the job that I was given when I was a kid, which is you go underneath the tree and you pull out a, a present and you give it, you know, to the people and you make sure that everybody has a present before you go get another present for, for somebody. And um, so Walt 
ran across to uh, Roy's house and, and got the chow puppy and put it in a hat box with a ribbon around it and brought it back and snuck it underneath uh, the Christmas tree. He had given Marjorie a, a heads up. I got to talk to her later in life. And um, so um, uh, she picked up the box and said, oh, this is for, uh, to Lily from Santa. And she said she looked over at her aunt Lillian, and steam was coming out of her ears as she was uh, sitting uh, in, in a chair because uh, she thought that Walt had bought her a hat, and she felt that Walt had terrible taste in hats. And in, in fact, there, there there's one story where they were driving in a convertible and and Lillian ripped the hat off of Walt's head and, and threw it into the street. And Walt, being Walt, of course, stopped and went back and got the hat. And then, then later had it uh, uh, had the crown of the hat done up like a heart and had it bronzed and gave it as a a, uh, uh, a Valentine's gift to Lillian. But anyway, Lillian thought, oh, he's gotten me a hat and this is terrible and I'm going to have to put on, you know, my fake gift face, you know, for uh, Roy and, and his wife Edna and, and my sister Hazel and, you know, all of this. And so with each step she took, Marjorie said, you know, I just became more more hesitant. And I, I just sort of with my fingertips, you know, put the, the box on, on, on her uh, uh, lap. And before Lillian could do anything, the box moved. And so Lillian <laughs> let out this huge scream. And, and then pushing its way out of the top of the box is the, this little head of this little chow puppy that um, uh, Lillian named Sonny, and, and Walt said, I never saw any person in, in my life more crazy about a dog than, than she was about Sonny. In fact, Sonny had to go everywhere with them. Sonny slept in their bed. Uh, uh, you know, uh, when they went out for uh, drives on, on Sunday, Walt had to make sure the dog came along. Uh, uh, as well. And Walt loved telling this story at the studio. And so that got incorporated into Lady and the Tramp, which is, uh, you know, where Lady, uh, the Cocker Spaniel there, is in that little hat box. And to make that even more significant, those of us who live out here in uh, uh, Florida at the Magic Kingdom uh, on Main Street, uh, in in uh, town square there, there's a uh, hat shop which is called uh, Le Chapeau, mm-hmm. and the big outdoor sign is that same hat box uh, from Lady and the Tramp, and and the, and the same ribbon and all of that. But what makes that even more significant is Le Chapeau is right next to Tony's uh, restaurant there, and Tony's restaurant, of course, based on uh, Lady and the Tramp. And uh, so you have this sign uh, there, uh, uh, you know, the, this little hat box. And uh, again, it, it's sort of sad. You're standing there on uh, Town Square and you see people rushing through, you know, to, to make use of their fast passes and, and all of this. And, and they're missing this wonderful little whimsical detail that, that that's just over there at the side. And, and in fact, that's one of the, uh, Let me get my grumpy old man cane and wave it in the air. Get those kids off my lawn. That music's too loud. Um, 
you know, I think Walt Disney World now has become a reservation vacation. Uh, I, I just had some friends who left this weekend who were, who were out here, and my gosh, it wasn't like, well, let's go and, and walk in the park. It's like, we have a fast pass reservation. We have a, 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 a lunch reservation for this. We have, you know, and, and, and it's like, this is way too much work. <laughs> yes, yes, we hear that a lot. So Now, over the last few weeks, uh, Craig and I, we've talked about some of our favorite Christmas films, and one of Craig's is Mickey's Christmas Carol, so we have to bring well, Craig, that up. Well, Craig has got excellent taste. That's all I can say. <laughs> yeah, because and you share some fascinating stories about the making of this film in your book. Can you share a couple of those with us? Oh, oh, yes. You know, I, I, again, I love um, uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, and uh, uh, again, uh, I got to talk to Bernie Matheson, who is the uh, director uh, of the film, and again, um, uh, who had uh, pitched the idea to Ron Miller, who was the head of the studio at the time. And, and again, I, I quote Bernie in the book and all that, because again, I think people who didn't have that same opportunity that I did, I want to share that with them so that they can hear, not just, hey, this is Jim Corcus's opinion. This is like, no, this came from the stockholders report. This came from an interview with this person, whatever. And so Bernie was working um, uh, at uh, uh, doing uh, uh, storyboard work for uh, and concept art for uh, the Black Cauldron, but he he was getting you know really frustrated and and uh, it had been twenty years since Mickey Mouse had appeared in a theatrical film, you know, and uh, he kept thinking, you know, we really need to bring Mickey back. It would be wonderful to bring Goofy and Donald, and, you know, they really need to be in a film together. And and he stumbled across uh, this uh, record album, uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, which uh, had been done by uh, uh, Alan Young, which which some of your listeners might remember from Mr. Ed, and yes, others will remember, remember. as the voice of uh, uh, Scrooge McDuck, among other things. And... Um, so they had done this Christmas album, and it had done very well. And uh, so Bernie it took the album to uh, 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 Ron Miller and said, you know, it, it might be nice to develop this as a uh, uh, holiday special. And, and they were thinking of, you know, maybe one of those half-hour TV specials, like How the Grinch Stole Christmas or Charlie Brown Christmas or or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, especially since, uh, Ron had brought in, uh, a bunch of, uh, uh, new animators from Cal Arts and he was looking for projects, uh, for them. So, so you had a, a Glenn Keane, you had John Lasseter, you had Brad Burt, all of these people are legendary now, but they, they were just young punks, you know, and, and had had no, you know, experience in any of this. And so Bernie said, uh, uh, he, he went into the office and, and Ron just sort of grumbles, you know, why are you giving me this? And, and Bernie thought, oh, geez, boy, I've overstepped myself. I'm going to get fired. And Ron was doing it as a joke. He says, no, I think this is a great idea, and I think you should direct it. And um, so this was Bernie's first opportunity uh, uh, to... Uh, uh, direct now there were a lot of changes that were made between the uh, 
uh, record album and the uh, uh, film. Uh, one of the ones that I found the, the funniest is on the record album. Uh, the uh, charity fundraisers uh, are um, uh, Honest John and Gideon from Pinocchio. <laughs> so, so basically. These are scam artists who are trying to who are trying to raise money. So maybe it was a, a good idea that Scrooge didn't give them money there at at, at the first part. And uh, of course, in those days, and and even up to today, you know, Disney really doesn't publicize uh, names. It's all anonymous. It's all just you know we're all collaborating together, and it's all just Disney. So nobody had a clue that Alan Young had written the story. You know, and uh, uh, or or done the voice of, of Scrooge because there were no credits on on the album. You know, uh, doing that, and um, uh, so Alan Young was doing. Uh, uh, Mr. Ed had had long been gone, and and uh, uh, Alan Young was was doing some uh, uh, theater. And uh, uh, one night backstage in the green room. You know, as they're preparing for the show to go on, he he sees this young actor doing this terrible, terrible Scottish accent, and he looks at Alan and because uh, Alan's from Scotland and and, and said, uh, um, you know, uh, that's a pretty terrible act. And and Alan said, yeah, here here, let me help you. So he took the script pages and started to read them, and he goes, wait a minute, this is the script I wrote. <laughs> And so he he phoned Disney and he said, uh, you know, would you think of auditioning me for, for this part uh, uh, of Scrooge? And and they hadn't uh, known that he had been involved, but they also felt that you know he had been out of the business for a while, you know, so maybe he's retired. And they also felt that well, maybe he's too expensive because uh, you know Disney makes an awful lot of decisions based just on money. That's why a lot of things get done and a lot of things don't get done. Or some things don't get removed because it, it would just be too much money to take it away, so it's cheaper just to keep it where it is, you know? Um, so anyway, uh, Alan uh, got uh, cast, and he said he was doing a uh, impression of his father. Uh, because And he said the big joke was in order for Alan to get work in Hollywood, he had to lose his Scottish accent, so you had to bring it back for Scrooge. And interestingly enough, it was so popular that that's what inspired uh, one of the inspirations for the creation of DuckTales, the TV mm. series, and, and bringing Alan in to do Scrooge, because they were just so uh, over the moon of his interpretation of Scrooge, bringing so much life to it, that you know, when they were looking for projects for the Disney Afternoon, uh, of, of course the uh, the thing was since we're going to be doing this in limited animation, we can't use our top guns. We can't use you know Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck or Goofy or, or, or whatever because what if it you know crashes and and and, uh, and burns? And and so in Ducktales, basically. Donald Duck in the first episode is sent off to the Navy. That's why the nephews are there with Scrooge, and Donald never appears again. He's off in the Navy somewhere. And um, uh, also, uh, again, they had uh, people working at uh, uh, Disney Animation TV who were big fans of Carl Barks. So 
oh my gosh, Scrooge McDuck? Of course we can tell stories with Scrooge McDuck. They're great stories to tell. So anyway, uh, Mickey's Christmas Carol, you know, helped uh, um, uh, inspire that. One of the things that Bernie told me that I had no idea was uh, Ron had suggested expanding it into a, um, a feature film. Mm-hmm. And, and so Bernie came up with other ideas, like, you know, Scrooge on his way to, to, to work every day would, would pass a uh, pet shop and Pluto would be in the window and Scrooge was immune to Pluto's playful puppy antics but at the end, purchases and purchases Pluto and gives them to uh, uh, Tiny Tim. But uh, Ron was overruled, as he often was. People don't realize this, but but Ron is the one who spent against the wishes of CEO Card Walker, spent twenty five dollars, twenty five thousand uh, dollars to option uh, uh, Roger Rabbit. You know, and mm-hmm. he was told, "Don't do that. You know, don't waste the studio's money on that." Um, but anyway, they were going to make it a feature, but then again, card Walker stepped in and said, if we make this a Christmas feature, people will only run it at Christmas, you know? So we're not going to do that. So it, it shrunk back down to that, that uh, half hour. And, uh, uh, there was, uh, strikes going on, animation strikes going on at the time. So instead of running on TV, uh, they released it, um, uh, theatrically in front of a re-release of uh, the rescuers and i will tell you i got the opportunity i i lived in uh, uh glendale california which is adjacent to to burbank of course where the disney studios were and in 1983 when this was released i was writing about animation for animation magazine and 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 other areas so i got invited to go to the disney studio and see the uh, debut screening of Mickey's Christmas Carol. And I will tell you, it, it, it was a, a, I didn't really, I, I knew it, that that was cool, but now in retrospect, it's like, well, that's uber cool. How come I didn't, you know, write down this in my diary? How come I didn't, you know? But I will tell you that sitting there in the audience, that people of all ages, the littlest kids uh, to the adults, were just screaming. They were just taken by this whole, you know, seeing um, uh, Mickey and Goofy and and uh, uh, Donald and, and all the gang up there on a big screen again. And in fact, the film was uh, uh, nominated for uh, an Academy uh, uh, award. It, it lost to uh, a Will Vinton uh, film, uh, Sunday in New York. But um, claymation uh, thing, but mm-hmm. boy, this was just gangbusters. I will tell you that when the film was first released, there was only one disappointing thing about the film. A lot of reviews were upset that it was called Mickey's Christmas Carol, but Mickey was not playing Scrooge. He was playing Bob oh. Cratchit, who was considered a supporting character. And I talked with uh, uh, Bernie about that, and he said, "You couldn't have Mickey as Scrooge, no, no, not at all." <laughs> you know, he, he said, "Mickey is, is the you know Mickey is is perfectly suited for Bob Cratchit. You know, uh, the nice guy who you know 
uh, can be intimidated, you know, and browbeaten and, and all of this, but then, you know, it keeps this sunny faith and optimism and then, you know, comes out uh, in the end. But that that was, interestingly enough, you look back at it now and you go, no, I don't think Mickey should have been Scrooge. But when the, the film was first released in, in 83, a lot of people uh, were a little disappointed that Mickey wasn't the star. He was just a a supporting uh, player. And and Bernie said that he hoped, you know, that this would start a whole string of um, Mickey, Donald, and Goofy uh, films. One of the ones that he, he was working on that never developed was uh, uh, Mickey Columbus, where, where Mickey would have been uh, Christopher Columbus, and Donald and Goofy would be part of the crew, and, you know, their misadventures, you know, of, of coming to the New World, and uh, there were there were several there that that were being uh, developed, but Mickey's Christmas Carol made that uh, that huge impact. And interestingly enough, it it has become you know one of those TV holiday specials that uh, get uh, shown. And and you know again some of the earliest animation by by people like John Lasseter. So uh, an inside joke in um, uh, prep and landing. Uh, uh, Wayne is is sitting on a chair and he's watching holiday specials on TV and there's a scene that comes up from Mickey's Christmas Carol and it was a scene that uh, John Lasseter, who produced uh, Prep and Landing, uh, uh, it was some of the first animation he had ever done and that's the scene and, and Wayne goes, oh, uh, let's go watch something else and clicks off the Yeah, oh, the, Christmas the special, else. how nice, yeah, he clicks it off. I just watched that the other night. So, I'm yeah, it, 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 Isn't that good? It, I, I like I that. Love, I, 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 I like the sequel and, and they were going to start on a third one but the sequel just didn't get... Um, the uh, uh, audience size of the first one. And so they just, you know, burned that's it off. Bad. But I thought, those are wonderful characters, and that's a wonderful yeah. world. It's it's just so rich, you know, uh, of all of those things. But nowadays, you know, you, you can, uh, uh, thanks to DVDs and Blu-rays and, uh, DVRs and whatever you can you can tape these things and watch them uh, anytime. When I was growing up, something like "From All of Us to All of You" was special mm-hmm. because that was the only time you could see the Disney Christmas cartoons. And that was actually the next story I wanted to talk about because that is something from my boyhood. I looked forward to "From All of Us to All of You," and Craig and I have been talking about that. Because and I had mentioned that it was it was the only time we could see clips from the Disney films because you know we had to wait every seven years for them to be re-released to the theaters back in mm-hmm. my day. But the reason, yeah. the other reason, and, and, and again, the, there were no recording devices, you know, right. so you could you couldn't do that. The, uh, there was no Disney Channel, right? You know, uh, and, and and again, I thought from all of us to all of you. It made such an impact on me that I thought, oh, my gosh, that must have been run every single December. Going oh, back and doing uh, research, you no, know, there, there was usually a three-year gap uh, between that. But, but boy, it, it is just as fresh in my mind mm-hmm. as, you know, and, and just love the song. And, of course, I was a huge fan 
of of Jiminy Cricket. So you have Jiminy Cricket, and, but you know, in some ways, it's probably outdated today because uh, you know I'm I'm looking at my uh, table over here, and and I've got maybe four Christmas cards on it. But but back in the day, from all of us, to all of you, you know, was on TV. That was the thing: is is you received tons of Christmas yes, cards, and you you put them on, on on the mantle and on the TV, and you uh, in, in our house we we actually put them on uh, a, a string or a garland, you know, and, and strung them across the uh, you, you know uh, dining room uh, uh, for all of that. Nowadays. Christmas cards are so expensive. Stamps are so expensive, you know, and and yeah. uh, 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 people just send these email cards. But from all of us to all of you was really, you know, hey, the Disney characters are sending you their Christmas card, you know, of of one of their favorite moments. And and again, Lady and the Tramp was 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 one of the mm-hmm. the the Christmas cards uh, uh, there, you know, and um, oh my gosh, it, it was just wonderful. And again, my gosh, when else are you ever going to see, you know, uh, these these cartoons and and it, and Disney animation, Disney storytelling, Disney characters? They're all so so wonderful. Yeah. And, well, and I uh, love the the ending when Jiminy Cricket has his gift which is when you have mm-hmm. the secret gift when you wish upon a star and the beautiful animation that was done is the different animals and characters come to listen to him sing yes. and um, that's I think one of the best moments of that television special it, it is well again for me one of the best moments is all these characters know each other mm-hmm. <laughs> they interact with each other you know, oh, well, they all live oh at gosh. Disneyland. They it, all know it, you know, the birds from Cinderella are perched on Alice in Wonderland's uh, 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 lap. You know, uh, Pluto is lying down next to, to Thumper. Oh my gosh, they they really are. You know, a family. They they you know, yeah. and and one of the things that I I missed is in the first versions uh, when Jiminy Cricket is singing uh, "When You Wish Upon the Star." Uh, he uh, tells the audience the reason he's singing that is because it uh, symbolizes faith, hope, and all the things Christmas stands for. So this is my personal wish for you, something that can make Christmas every day. And I'm going, oh, oh, Jiminy, Jiminy, you're my hero, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and of uh, course, in the, the first time it aired, Walt, was you know yeah, yeah. It. Well, Walt was in there and, a little a little yeah. miniature Walt uh, on, <laughs> on on the, the mantelpiece mantle and and uh, again those uh, it aired in in fifty eight mm-hmm. and for those who weren't around uh, thank heavens for things like YouTube you can go on YouTube and uh, somebody posted the original uh, fifty eight version so you can see uh, um, Walt on the the mantle. Uh, uh, place uh, there and, and telling the audience that he's going to turn this over to uh, Jiminy Cricket and uh, uh, Mickey Mouse and uh, Tinkerbell. Yes, and Tinkerbell. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, the show stayed pretty much the same until 1963 when uh, uh, suddenly the uh, uh, Walt intro and the, uh, the uh, closing 
you know, were were messed with uh, because they were publicizing um, uh, 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 Sword in the Stone. Uh, And so, you know, uh, Jiminy comes out and does a little thing of, you know, you know, what's Christmas without a a surprise or whatever. And so uh, that and then, you know, later they would always put in what was the uh, uh, upcoming film, you know, either a new release or a re-release. So, you know, Jungle Book or Robin Hood or Peach Dragon or Aristocats, whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, you would have that, and they kept messing with it. And then in 1983, it, it from all all of us, all of you, just disappeared because the Disney Channel came on, and so they took clips from from all of us to all of you, and they expanded this to 90 minutes with with more clips and all of it, and they just retitled it uh, a Disney Channel Christmas. But um, you know, for those of us who uh, are of a certain age, <laughs> from all of us to all of you, th- this w- was the, the thing. And, and again, I just love that song. Uh, it had lyrics by uh, Gil George, which was the pseudonym uh, for Disney's uh, studio nurse, Hazel George. Mm-hmm. In fact, she wrote an awful lot of lyrics for uh, an awful lot of Disney uh, films. And, and again, in those days, you couldn't use a girl name. Right, because people wouldn't give you that uh, respect, so it was Gil George instead of Hazel George, and the music was from uh, Paul Smith, who did a lot of uh, wonderful music for uh, for Disney uh, uh, films, especially uh, uh, the True Life Adventures. And um, uh, unfortunately, he had an, an alcohol problem, but but interestingly enough, too, he and Hazel uh, lived together. Uh, you know, for for the uh, uh, rest of their uh, uh, life, and and some people uh, confuse uh, Paul Smith with another Paul Smith, uh, who is a director for some terrible uh, Walter Lance cartoons. So, see, that's why it's important for you to listen to this podcast, is because you get all of this information <laughs> you yes, can't find right. anywhere else. It, right. it, it's it's all completely useless. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it but you who are listening, you are probably the Disney expert for your friends and family. So when you share all of this, uh, not one of you will hear. Oh, did you hear that on that podcast? Did you hear that from Jim Corcus? <laughs> They'll go. Oh, you were just so smart. You know so much about Disney. <laughs> and and so so that's our Christmas gift to you. That's right. <laughs> so now making you the hero of the holiday season. That's right. That's right. Everyone will be fascinated, be dazzled by your brilliance. Um, now let's move on to the Disney Park Stories uh, section. Oh, okay. now, many of our listeners make it a tradition to visit Disney parks during the Christmas season because. All of, with all the decorations in the parks, it, it makes them feel even more magical. And I know some guests will stay up overnight in the resort lobbies to watch the Christmas trees and decorations being put up. And in your book... It, it, the, it, mm-hmm. And it's well, an amazing thing to see. Oh, it is. It is. And well, well, you know, book, even more amazing than that is seeing them do the uh, decorations on the cruise ships. Because I don't know if you've been on a Disney cruise or any of your listeners have, but you pull into dock and you're, you know, supposed to be off the boat by nine ten o'clock because they're going to 
uh, be boarding people, you know, uh, you know, sh- shortly after uh, uh, noon, you know, uh, maybe as late as two o'clock, but uh, as early as they possibly can. And uh, Disney Holiday Services has to get on the 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 uh, ship as soon as people have left, and people and the rest of the staff is turning over rooms and you know restocking the food and all of that. They have to put up the Christmas trees and the decorations and all of that within just hours wow. before the next group, you know, boards on. And uh, it, again, the decorations have just become more and more massive uh, uh, every year. You, you, you talk about uh, Walt Disney World. Uh, this year there were over 600 Christmas trees that uh, had to be put up as, as decorations, and they ranged in height from... Uh, from two feet to uh, uh, seventy feet, and the seventy footer is in uh, uh, the contemporary resort at at Walt Disney World, and uh, of course this is also the twentieth anniversary uh, for gingerbread houses in the resort lobbies. And again, I, I wasn't able, didn't have enough room to cover the gingerbread houses in 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 the book, so. Go out and buy this book from Amazon.com or ThemeParkPress.com so there can be a sequel and you, you, you'll hear these stories. But, um, yeah, all, all of the girls, and it's constantly changing, and all of this is done by Holiday Services, which is a huge building uh, behind uh, the Magic Kingdom. It, it's uh, uh, like three stories tall, uh, and, and it works, you know, all year round. That's 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 basically uh, uh, about it, you know, uh, because they they've got to uh, keep all of this uh, uh, happening, you know, because they're decorating uh, uh, not not just the cruise ships, they're decorating Castaway Key and the reservation centers and Disney Springs Marketplace and. Uh, they also decorate uh, uh, the DVC properties, Vero Beach and uh, uh, Hilton Head, you know, and um, they, they have about 54,000, I think, square feet of space. And, and it's just an amazing uh, thing. I, I, I've been in there, and it's like this massive warehouse, you know, with all these different levels. And how how they've got all this stuff coordinated is, is beyond me. It's amazing. But, um, it is amazing. Yeah, it is. But, but I'm sure you want to talk about other things at the parks as yeah. well. <laughs> well. Yeah. Well, in your in your book, the Vault of Vault Christmas Edition, you write about some of our favorite Disney theme park traditions. For instance, um, parades were a part of Disneyland since it opened in 1955, and the first Christmas parade stepped off in 1957. Uh, Although, in- actually, if you want to debate that, the first Christmas parade was actually that first December 1955. Because Walt had the uh, Mickey Mouse Club Circus, which was that huge tent over where the Matterhorn is. And, of course, he had bought authentic circus wagons, you know, and they would go down the street. And so you'd follow the the circus parade to the circus, you know, Mm -hmm. very clever. That is clever. But Walt also made it a Christmas parade. So you had the uh, three wise men with the camels, because, again, the camels were part of the circus. Mm -hmm. Here they are, boom, 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 boom. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so there were Christmas elements because once you got into the Mickey Mouse Club Circus, the big finale of the circus 
was the Santa Claus Parade, where uh, the Mouseketeers in in uh, costumes of uh, uh, toy soldiers and Snow White and uh, all of that and toys, you know, w- would go around the big r- circus ring, and uh, uh, it would end with Jimmy Dodd, who was the ringmaster, you know, talking about the magic. Uh, Walt Disney is giving you the magic at Christmas. And this huge Christmas tree, 40-foot Christmas tree in seconds, would rise up from the ground. It was fabric. Rise up from the ground to the, the star at the top of the tent. And then a um, Santa in his sleigh would come in to go right around uh, uh, the circus ring. And, and Santa was portrayed by um, Bruce Bushman, who was an Imagineer, did a lot of design work for um, uh, Fantasyland. And, you know, you, you always wonder, how does Disney know these things? You know, all of this must be precise and, and, and all this. And so I, I asked, I said, I said how, how did he determine how wide, you know, a ride vehicle would be? And they said, well, they used Bruce Bushman because he was over six foot tall. He was 300 pounds. And Walt felt that if he could sit in the seat comfortably, then it would, it would serve a regular adult and a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's they determined how wide a vehicle would be. And so that was that was uh, Christmas, but you're right. The very first official Christmas parade was in 57. But even then, Walt was struggling for money. We always think that Disneyland was an immediate success. It really wasn't. It was popular, but it was not an immediate success. And in fact, you know, uh, uh, six months after... Uh, uh, Disneyland opened, they discovered in a drawer somewhere uh, an additional million dollar worth of bills that had not been paid because they had no money at the time to pay them. And now, you know, these were well overdue and had to be done. So for the Christmas first Christmas parade, Walt reached out uh, to local community groups. Walt was very clever about that. So sometimes if there was a uh, uh, an antique car club, he would reach out to them. And so for uh, uh, Easter, they would bring their antique cars, you know, to do an Easter parade up and down uh, Main Street and all of that, because you only had to give a, a free admission ticket uh, to the participant, and then the rest of their family had to buy tickets to come in and see them, you know, in the, in the parade. So uh, for the Christmas parade, and remember, in 57, Christmas was only... Uh, those two weeks that kids were out uh, from school. It, it's not like today at Walt Disney World where, where Christmas seems to last for 10 months or something. <laughs> um, it was only for, for two weeks, and so they would. Uh, Walt felt that Disneyland was for everyone, so he reached out to cultural groups, and they would come and uh, have either a little homemade float you know, like they would for a hometown parade or whatever, or and and dress people in colorful costumes. Uh, so the Hispanic uh, community was dressed in the, the colorful costumes, and they would be carrying pinatas, and you know, you might have a mariachi band, you know, uh, along with that, whatever. And you know, they would walk down, and then you would um, uh, sprinkle it with uh, uh, some Disney characters, and then also. Uh, costumed animals that you uh, costumes that you rented from, you know, Western costume or or, or other places uh, for that. The problem was 
These were all volunteer groups. So you never knew if you were going to have uh, five groups or you were going to have two dozen. Um, because sometimes people work during the week and they couldn't get off, you know, to, 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 to go to Disneyland to participate in the parade, but they'd, they'd be there for the weekends. And so, uh, you, you know, the, uh, uh, the UK uh, group would dress in medieval uh, uh, finery and, and pull a Yule log, you know, or uh, 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 the cultural group from, from Norway had uh, uh, the uh, Father Christmas figure and his goat, because he, he has a goat in their mythology and, and, and all this uh, uh, go around that. But uh, eventually, you know, uh, Disneyland got on firmer footing and Walt felt, you know, we got to take over. You know, we, we, we can't just do this haphazard uh, stuff. So in 61, um, Babes in Toyland came out, and, and that was always considered a Christmas film. It was a Christmas release, and uh, people always associated Babes in Toyland with Christmas. It was a dud. It mm-hmm. was a dud. And, and Walt realized it was a dud. So what can we do to get people into theaters to see this before word of mouth gets around that this is a dud. So uh, he went to uh, two of his Imagineers, Bill Justice and uh, Exitensio, and he said, let's have a Christmas parade that is a parade of toys. And the uh, Opera House, uh, which had really just been the uh, woodmill uh, for, for Disneyland, so nobody had ever been in the Opera House, uh, was transformed with props from Babes in Toyland. So this was the first time uh, a lot of people could come in and see actual props from an actual film. So I better go see this film. Look, mm-hmm. I, I saw what the tree was like. You know, So, so anyway, uh, and uh, Bill said, I had never done a parade before. X had never done a parade before, but you never told Walt no, so you just had to try and figure it out. And and Walt told him, look, uh, Bill, we're not... Uh, and again, I quote Bill Justice. Bill Justice was a longtime friend of mine. He, he shared an awful lot of stories with me. I, I quote him extensively in the book about this. But Walt came to him and said, look, we're not in, in competition with the Pasadena Rose Parade and all of this, you know, which meant he didn't want the parade float so big that little kids had to lean back to try and see things and all that. He wanted them, you know, at a height where it was comfortable to see and see the characters and and all of this. And uh, uh, he had gone to Bill and X because they had done uh, the stop-motion toys for the film. And so Walt says, well, just make them bigger. <laughs> and, and Bill says, you know, that's easy enough to say, but if you make, you know, a little six-inch uh, 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 tall, uh, you know, marching soldier... And now you have to make them six foot tall, you know. There are problems, you know. And and again, uh, you had the marching soldiers who actually did a uh, uh, a marching routine, but they also played, you know, trumpets, uh, drums, uh, things like this. There were all sorts of uh, uh, toys. Exitentio came up with the uh, uh, silly reindeer whose whose tongues are hanging out of their. Uh, now, and he did that because when you move the head, the tongue 
would sway back and forth, so you get that sense of, of animation. You know, and, and those figures became so iconic in the 61 parade that uh, although they've been, you know, rehabbed and, and redesigned, they still exist in the, in the parade uh, uh, today. And then you also had Santa Claus as, as the final float, and he had a, a sleigh, and in the back of his sleigh he had a huge bag, and in the bag were um, two performers costumed as uh, Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. Uh, and uh, they would uh, uh, grab small stuffed toys and just throw them out uh, uh, to kids uh, uh, along the parade route. Try, try and imagine Disney doing that today. Oh, I know. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, Walt, Walt's feeling was, you know, everybody should get something for Christmas. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> and uh, the the parade, you know, just continued to uh, expand, and uh, you know they experimented with a lot of different things. At at one time, they had uh, a, a three person uh, reluctant dragon uh, figure, you know, very similar to the Chinese dragon, you know, that they would do for mm-hmm. Chinese New Year with uh, different people in it, and and it would blow uh, uh, smoke actually talcum powder, you know, through its nostrils. It scared kids, so that was gone. Uh, one year, uh, uh, Bill designed a, a float where the darling children from um, uh, Peter Pan were uh, having a pillow fight on their bed and, and were jumping up in the air, so they were almost like flying. And so the bed was actually a trampoline, you know, uh, uh, for that to happen. So. Uh, the parade has gone through, you know, various changes uh, uh, over the years. And uh, then, of course, in, in 83, it was the first year that, uh, you know, the parade was broadcast on, on TV. And everybody thinks, oh, well, yeah, that was uh, uh, Regis Philbin. No, no, the first hosts were uh, Joan London and uh, Mike Douglas, who mm-hmm. was a talk show host. You know, Regis didn't come until... Uh, uh, a couple of years uh, uh, later, and even then, is just a on-the-street correspondent. And then he didn't become a, a, a co-host until '91, and then he only did that for about four or five years. And then they went with a bunch of rotating celebrities. And then in 2001, he and Kelly Ripa came on board and uh, uh, did that. And and boy, I just loved watching the. Uh, on Christmas Day, you know, that was the tradition. You watch Macy's uh, uh, parade on Thanksgiving Day, and uh, growing up in, in California, you, you watch the Rose Parade on New Year's Day. On Christmas Day, you watch the Disney Christmas Parade, and yes. it was great because because they gave, you know, little behind-the-scenes previews of of things that were... Di- they don't do that anymore now. No, but, they don't. Um, you, you know, again, where's that grumpy old man came yeah. here? It's well, and remember, remember the Walt Disney World Easter Parade, too. That they oh, used yes. To yes. I love that. And yeah, uh, I, I, I love that. I love that uh, it, uh, as, as well. And, yeah. uh, you know, the problem, Michael, is we're all just getting too old. You I know, know I know. And, 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 that, and that's why we know Disney history is because we live through all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, t- today people have no memory of, of things. I, I, I ran into uh, uh, someone who didn't know what the Osborne Festival of Lights was. And oh I said, God. how and could that, you not know that? That's only been gone that, three that, years. 
That, that, yeah, it's only been gone three years. That was spectacular. And and I was talking uh, to someone about the uh, Lights of Winter, which was the lighted oh, archway yeah. at, at Epcot. And it's like, no, they never had that. Yes, they did for over a decade. You could, you know, go underneath this archway of lights and there would be music and you would go across the the uh, uh, the, the bridge from uh, Future World to World Showcase Plaza where the huge Christmas tree was and there's there's a mausoleneous story I, I I want to cover because I had never heard this one before. Now yeah, we're talking about how how bitter people are about the you know Osborne mm-hmm. family spectacle, dancing lights or lights of winter being gone. One of the things I I've talked about on this show how bitter I am is how Walt Disney's Song of the South is locked oh, up gosh, in yes. the deepest chamber of the Disney Vault. Well, based on a story from your book, I assume that cartoon strip by Floyd Norman titled A Zippity Doodah Christmas is sitting in that vault right next to Song uh, of the you, South. You, you know, <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, I wrote a book called uh, Who's Afraid of the Song mm-hmm. of the South? So people can find that on Amazon.com a, a, as well, because I figured, hey, Disney is never going to write a book about this. And so um, for people who don't know, Floyd Norman is a Disney legend. Uh, uh, Floyd is also, uh, you know, uh, uh, an animator, a, uh, cartoonist, a, a story man. He actually works at Pixar. Floyd also happens to be, uh, black and he was the first, um, he was one of the first black animators to be hired personally by Walt Disney in the 1950s to work at the Disney studio. And, uh, he was the first, um, black animator uh, at the Disney Studios to be elevated to uh, the position of story man, which was hugely high status at the uh, uh, Disney uh, Studios. And, and that was from Walt. And, and uh, Floyd worked on Jungle Book and a bunch of films and, and all of that. Uh, in the uh, uh, 80s, because uh, Floyd jumped around to a bunch, he was so valuable and so talented, he jumped around to a bunch of different departments. Uh, he was working in the uh, comic strip uh, department. He was, he was actually supplying uh, gags for the Mickey Mouse uh, uh, comic strip, and they pulled him over, and they wanted him to start writing um, some of the Disney Christmas strips. Uh, Disney, through uh, King Feature Syndicate, um, uh, King Feature Syndicate uh, distributed things like Flash Gordon, uh, The Phantom, Prince Valiant, you know, Popeye, you know, all of the top of the line stuff. They were distributing the Disney uh, comic strips. Uh, as a promotional device, uh, Disney for several years did a Disney comic strip that would appear in papers for uh, four weeks before Christmas. So it would run Monday through Saturday for four weeks and then the strip would end on um, Christmas Day, uh, December 25th. And it wouldn't be in the regular comic strip section because that would mean you'd have to kick out a comic strip. It would be elsewhere in the newspaper. So literally, you had to page through the, the paper to find it so you would come across all these ads, you know, for Christmas and all that. And And the stories were, you know... Uh, uh, fairly simple, you know, 
uh, Captain Hook uh, kidnaps Santa Claus, and Peter Pan has to come and rescue him, you know. And he rescues him just by December 25th. So the final <laughs> strip is, you know, Santa Claus in his sleigh out to, you know, uh, deliver the presents and uh, uh, all of that. So uh, beautifully written, beautifully uh, uh, drawn. And uh, in the uh, in 1986, uh, Disney was releasing uh, Song of the South to theaters as uh, its 40th anniversary. It turned out that that was the last time it ever released it theatrically. But again, Disney is synergy, so you want to do something to promote that. And so Floyd, who is doing the Christmas strip, suggested, let's do Song of the South. But then he had to do all this negotiation. He had to do all of this compromise. You know, uh, yes, you could have Uncle Remus, but only for, you know, X number of panels, and he can't use dialect, you know. And so the basic storyline is that um, uh, Uncle Remus is telling a, a, a story to, to, the, to the two children who are upset because there's going to be no snow this year for Christmas, and basically Uncle Remus is saying, you know, that reminds me of the time that Br'er Rabbit was upset that there was no <laughs> snow. And so he t- it tells this wonderful story of, you know, Br'er Rabbit running away and then getting tricked by uh, Br'er Bear and uh, Br'er Fox, who are using grits to to try and create fake snow. And uh, as uh, Br'er Rabbit goes to investigate, they capture him and, and all of that. But fortunately, a real Christmas miracle, real snow comes, and uh, Br'er Rabbit is able to use the snow to create a... Uh, uh, Santa Claus uh, uh, image, and that tricks uh, Br'er Bear into releasing him. And you know, uh, again, it's four weeks, and it's it's aimed at at a young uh, uh, audience. And so Floyd said, you know, they they submitted this, and this went through all different levels of approval at Disney. King features were aghast. You know, how could they? Disney give them this racially insensitive uh, story, and they brought out Floyd, and they said, this is the guy who wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> so so they ran the comic strip. There was not one complaint across the entire country about the strip. And as I said, it helped promote the fact, the, the holiday release of, of Song of the South. But what happened is Floyd was told, you know, never do that again. <laughs> and uh, IDW has released a, a, a wonderful book, which you might want to put in your Christmas stocking. No, it's not by me. It's called Disney Christmas Classics, and it reprints all of these wonderful uh, Disney Christmas comic strips. Every single one, except Song of the South. <laughs> uh which is not mentioned at all, even in the introductory material. So basically, uh, in, in my book, I, and I hope I'm not cor- uh, corrupting the youth of America, uh, I, have, I have a copy of it. I, again, I'm good friends with Floyd, and Floyd uh, told me some wonderful stories about the strip, which I include in the book, but he gave me a, a, a copy of this. So, you know, the people doing the book, could have, it could have gotten a copy of this. It's not like this is lost forever. And um, 
so I summarized day by day what mm-hmm. was happening, you know, uh, in the comic strip so we, we can preserve this story. Because, you know, if we don't preserve these stories, if we don't preserve our history, it's all going to be lost. But, Michael, to, to, to your point, I think you're absolutely right. This and some of the Song of the South storybooks and all this are locked away so deeply in the Disney vault that uh, one of these days somebody's going to stumble across them and go, what is this? Because yeah. even today I run into people who love going on Splash Mountain. They have no idea it's based on a Disney uh, film. Yeah, no, that's very true. So, um, so well, well, and the stories that, that Jim has shared, th- this is just a smattering, as Winnie the Pooh might say, of what's what's in the book because it is full of of stories. I don't know how many stories are actually in here, but there's a lot. So there, but yeah, all there's, very... there's there's a lot, and uh, again, they're all self-contained. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to pick up the book and read it from beginning to end. Just jump to whatever you know attracts your interest. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what I have been told by other people is you know they'll immediately go to. Uh, a, a story or or a topic that they're interested in. You know, they're a big fan of the park, so they want to read a park story. After they read that, my gosh, they they, they want to read about the 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 story of uh, uh, Ward Kimball uh, uh, dressing up in a, a a gorilla suit instead of a Santa suit to to scare his his little daughter at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and and uh, again, you know. I want to share these stories because we're losing these stories. And with Disney, Disney has um, what what is called an approved narrative, which means this is the story we can tell and this is the way we can tell it. So even if a story is true, we don't tell that because it's not part of the approved narrative anymore. And so... Um, I feel these stories are, are are the type of stories that I would have wanted uh, to read when when I was growing up because there were very few books about uh, uh, Disney, you know. And uh, uh, so I'm I'm trying to as as long as I'm able, I'm trying to uh, uh, get those stories out there. And and if you agree with that, then you need to vote with your wallet. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, so Jim, you need tell to us vote again. with your wallet and 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 yeah. buy one or two of these, either mm-hmm. for your uh, for your own stocking or for uh, 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 your friends. And <laughs> and again, I think even the Vault of Walt Christmas edition. Somebody said, "Well, after Christmas is over, nobody's going to buy that book." I th- I think it's so rich in history that people will want to have that, you know, uh, to, oh, to keep for the, for the whole year. So tell tell us again how our listeners can obtain a copy of the Vault of Walt Christmas edition. Okay, uh, go to Amazon.com. That that's usually the easiest way uh, mm-hmm. to do it. Al- although it's uh, available at uh, other places, or go to uh, ThemeParkPress.com because that way you can uh, run across some of my other books or or books done uh, by other people. And and I'm not only recommending the Vault of Walt uh, Christmas edition. You heard me recommend the Christmas comic strip book. There's a beautiful book that just came out uh, this Christmas by Jeff Curdy on the yes. Disney corporate Christmas cards. 
I'm, I'm not so excited about the, the cover. You, you open, the cover just seems to open oddly. But, but the material, just absolutely wonderful. And, and Jeff Curdy is, is definitely one of those people that uh, uh, you can uh, uh, trust. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I just wish there were uh, some uh, compilations of some of the uh, uh, Disney Christmas comic books that I grew up, you know, reading over the years. Yeah, that would be nice. So are you, Jim, are you working on any projects that you can oh, talk gosh, about? Yes. Okay. Because, because, because unless you're a J.K. Rowling or a Stephen King, you're not going to make money from books. But you make <laughs> a little bit of money. So mm-hmm. if you have a lot of books and each one makes a little bit of money, you might be able to pay for your root canal. So <laughs> I'm always working on a new book. And, and as I said, I also feel this urgency to get stories out there. One of the books that I wrote was uh, the unofficial Disneyland 1955 Companion, which covers the entire history of the making of Disneyland and and its first year of operation. And again, uh, people that I talked with, Imagineers, uh, ride operators who were there. So, So you get, look, this is what it really was like. I have just finished a sequel the unofficial Walt Disney World 1971 companion that will be coming out in March. And it covers the entire history of Walt Disney World from 1958, when Walt first started to do studies of building something on the East Coast, right up through 1972. And uh, the foreword is uh, by Tom Nabby, who um, oh, okay. was the first uh, Tom Sawyer at Disneyland, but moved out in 71 uh, to Walt Disney World to handle the monorails. And the uh, afterword is written by um, Bill Sully Sullivan, who started at Disneyland in 1955 as a Jungle Cruise skipper, and then in 1971 moved out and uh, trained the people uh, who worked at the uh, Contemporary and the Polynesian in terms of you know the Disney approach to customer service. And when the park officially opened, uh, he was in charge of uh, security in the park. And he, he later went on to become vice president of, of the Magic Kingdom and all of this. So they have read the book. They loved it. And they said, you know, this is really accurate. And, and you're showing that this really was a a fire drill, and even though we had built Disneyland, <laughs> none of that applied to uh, Walt Disney World. You know, everything was different. The, mm-hmm. the temperature was different. The culture was different. You know, we couldn't get certain things that we wanted, you know. And so uh, I'm hoping people who are interested in Walt Disney World will be interested in that book of this is the true story of how Walt Disney World was, was built and it's not just the park. There are chapters on each of the resorts. There's chapters on uh, the recreation, you know, the bobalong boats, the, uh, mm-hmm. the stuff that was going on at uh, Fort Wilderness and, and all of this. And as I said, covers it from uh, 1958 uh, through 1972. There's one chapter where I, I interviewed Marty Scalar about Walt's Epcot film. So the entire chapter is just Marty talking about what it was like 
writing that film and directing Walt and things that happened and things that didn't happen. And so I'm, I'm, I'm excited I'm about excited. all my books. I, yeah, I don't great. write a book unless I'm excited about it, but I'm excited about that. And then after that, but don't hold me to this because I've been mm-hmm. struggling with this. After that will be a secret stories of, um, the Disney cruise line. Ah, There's plenty okay. of books out there that will tell you how to get cheap fares and what time a year to go and whatever. My book is about the stories. Why is that there? And what is the story behind that? And why did the Imagineers decide to put that there? Um, so, um, I'm excited about that too. That but I got to like get this other one. one out first. Yeah. I'll look forward <laughs> to all of those. So, so again, and, and I'll look forward to more podcasts with with you and, right? and Craig. Us and too. and those of you who are listening, you know, you should always tune in because <laughs> they they always have a, a wonderfully new perspective uh, on things, and both of them are hugely passionate about Disney, which is one of the reasons. I love coming back on, not just to promote my my uh, books, but I love talking with people who love Disney as much as I do. Oh well, thank you, Jim. Well, we're delighted to have you on, and um, and Craig, we'll have links to um, your book on Amazon and Theme Park Press in our show notes. So, Jim, thank you for joining us on Connecting with Walt to share your stories and for making our Christmas a little more merry this year. And and for all your listeners, my Christmas wish for you is may all your Disney dreams come true this coming year. Thank you, Jim. And yours as well. Thanks. Well, it is time for our holiday edition of our This Week in Disney History quiz. So, so Craig, are you fortified with your cup of eggnog? Are you all ready to go for the week of December 23rd? Absolutely, I am. Okay, terrific. All right, let's just jump right in. All right, on December 23rd, 1966, Time Magazine features the article, Walt Disney, Images of Innocence. The article states, when he died last week of cancer at 65, Disney was no longer simply the fundamental primitive imagist. The psychedelic merchants preempted that role, but a giant corporation whose vast assembly lines produced ever slicker products to dream by wow so but the question is whose image was featured on the magazine cover that week hmm. I... and there is a disney connection <laughs> okay see i didn't think it was going to be that straightforward and they would have put walt on there um just trying to think of what else was really going on at that point in 66 to think who it might be but I, I think you stumped me on this one. Okay. It's Julie Andrews. Oh. Was there a reason why she was on the cover? I, I don't know. I don't have the magazine. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm trying to think what film came out. Was there a film that came out? No, because Mary Poppins was 64. Time? Sound of Music was 65. And yeah. I don't know if she when, did anything when was... in 66. When was thoroughly modern Millie? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, all right. On December 24th, 1959, what long-standing Disney tradition began in Sweden? I am hoping that it's something that we've talked about now for 
the past two weeks, and that's huh? watching uh, from all of us for, to all of you. That's right, exactly. It's it's it. This is this began when you know half of Sweden sat down in front of the television for a family viewing of this Christmas special. And remember how we even talked. And I was going to bring this up with Jim, and then didn't. Um, remember how we talked about how did Donald Duck get involved in this? Because in the translation, and I I'm not even going to begin to pronounce <laughs> how this special is said in Swedish, but it translates to Donald Duck and his friends wish you a Merry Christmas. Oh. So, um, so it, and so it will air without commercial interruption at the same time on Sweden's main public television channel, TV one. And on Christmas Eve, which is when Swedes traditionally um, celebrate the holiday for the next 50 years, this is typically one of the three most popular television events of the year. Now they didn't, for a lot of this time, they didn't have a lot of television stations. Yeah. So, um, so, so, but, but, but between 40 to 50% of the country tunes in to watch. And it will also become a tradition in Norway and Denmark. So, uh, so interesting. So, and then, and they have added to it, you know, over time and all that. But yeah, yeah. so yeah, they get, they get to have it. And, <laughs> and whatever, whatever additions they make to it, the Disney company has to approve it all. Yeah. So, One day so. I'll bring it back. I have yeah, no power to do that, but I will. Would, oh, good. No, I'm <laughs> looking forward to it. Okay, December 25th. All right. What Disneyland attraction set sail on December 25th, 1955? Hmm. So I know it's a boat, obviously. Um, hmm. I'm just, I'm not quite sure, to be honest with you. It's the Mike Finn keelboats. Oh, I would have gotten there eventually if I would have started guessing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was capturing that whole Davy Crockett mania that was going on at the time. So, okay, um, December 26th, newsman Dave McPherson is born in Ithaca, New York on December 26th, 1932. What is his place in Disney history? The name sounds extremely familiar. I, um, I can narrow it down. What is his place in Disneyland history? I, well, that's actually what I was kind of leaning towards was he the first I I I think it's one of these two he was either the first person to to go in or he bought the first ticket he was the first paying guest to enter Disneyland okay Roy Roy O Disney purchased the first ticket that's right that's right okay yeah that's who he is all right December 27th, who appeared on the cover of Time magazine for the first time on December 27th, 1937? Hmm. I'm going to say it was 37. That was kind of a big year. I'm going to say it was probably Walt. 
It was, yes. This is uh, the publication profiles Walt Disney. The week Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs was released. Yeah. <laughs> they, they called the film the most ambitious animated cartoon ever attempted. So, and it was. Okay. It was, definitely, yeah. So December 28th, composer and lyricist Anne Rennell, one of the first successful Hollywood and Tin Pan Alley female composers, is born in Omaha, Nebraska on December 28th, 1906. On which well-known Disney song did she collaborate? Hmm. I, I do not believe I've ever heard her name before. Mm-hmm. So. I'll give you a hint. It was Disney's first hit song. Um, I think I know that answer. And wasn't that Big Bad Wolf? That's right. Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? She co-wrote that song with oh. Frank Churchill for the 1933 cartoon, The Three Little Pigs. Now, her exact contributions are in dispute, but the sheet music cover credits her simply with additional lyrics. Now, she was notable for being one of the only composers at the time to handle both music and lyrics. Hmm. Okay, so December 29th, it is widely believed that John Lennon took time during a vacation at Walt Disney World to perform what act on December 29th, 1974? Um, I'm assuming that this was what he was doing was uh, everything that was happening with the Beatles breaking up. Mm hmm. Yeah. He signed the paperwork that officially dissolved the Beatles while staying at the Walt Disney World's Polynesian Village Resort. He, along with his son Julian and friend May Pang, are spending the Christmas holiday in Florida. Now, although the Beatles had stopped existing as a band in 1970, it has taken approximately four years to draw up legal paperwork to divide their earnings. The documents, and you can imagine how big these documents were. <laughs> have been brought down to Florida for Lennon to approve, as the other three Beatles have already signed. So, very good for our very last uh, history quiz for 2018. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Yeah. So, so, Craig, do you and Kylie have any special Christmas traditions that you'll be celebrating no, next week not not so much so we're just uh gonna gonna celebrate christmas with family and i'm mm-hmm. going to finish up cramming in the rest of all of the the movies that i have to watch that i've pushed off till the <laughs> last second saying well no I, I i can't watch i can't watch this this early in the month i have to i have to watch that like in a week leading up till christmas and you know, it's uh, it's been a crazy week this week. It's with the return uh, with Mary Poppins Returns coming out, and mm-hmm. just trying to get all those last minute last minute presents bought and everything. So um, that's that's mostly what I'll be doing. But. Yeah, I haven't even seen Wreck It Ralph yet, so I have to do that. You know, breaks mm-hmm. Ralph breaks the internet, so I still have to do that. But um, yeah, so I discovered, I came across a Christmas film I'd never heard of before. I think it says Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. I think Remember the Night. Mm-hmm. I, I so I um, I have to 
I have to watch that. So. Yeah, I've, I I think I watched that one year on TCM. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they all just start bleeding together, except the ones yeah. that really stand out. Yeah, know. Leonard Maltin really liked it, so I have to um, I have to watch that, see yeah. what it's about. <laughs> so anyway, well, I hope you have you and Kylie have a wonderful Christmas. Oh, and you as well. So, oh, thank you. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you, since all the shows are on hiatus now? Yeah, uh, <laughs> we, uh, You can connect with me, as always, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Teleclaster. And then when the, the year starts, um, I believe our shows... I don't remember if we covered this in a previous episode. I, I want to say we did a little bit, but uh, all the normal Diz shows are going to start returning the week of January 7th, with the exception of uh, the Universal show and Connecting with Walt, because I am going to be on a Disney cruise that week. So uh, we're pushed back until the 17th and 18th, respectively, for the Universal mm-hmm. show and connecting with Walt. So I will see you back then. But, uh, Michael, what about you? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. The, like the one with the... Uh, the connecting as well banner instagram michael bowling the diz and you can always connect with me and craig at the connecting as well twitter page at connecting walt if you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of walt disney his studio his imagineers and disneyland check out our disneyland podcast archives for my disney history episodes at disunplug.com and look for past episodes of connecting with walt on itunes where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings and i mentioned last week that the facebook page disney inspires is having some a contest on vote for your favorite disney podcast so if you want to vote for connecting with walt we would appreciate it apparently it's getting a little wild out there um i guess some podcasters are well some are holding contests for their vote for to get votes some i guess are so yeah i we're not quite into it that much sorry sorry gang but um but some i guess are paying paying for votes so they're getting disqualified from what I from what I read on Facebook earlier tonight. So anyway, so I thought, okay, that's just getting nuts. But anyway, but if you'd like to show your love for connecting with Walt, we'd appreciate it. That Disney inspires and voting continues through December twenty fifth for that. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing: that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney. And his brother, Roy. And from all of us to all of you, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll be back on January 18th, 2019 with more stories connecting you with Walt. Walt. <laughs> 